Hello and welcome to another episode of Panelism, the podcast where we talk comics and culture. I'm Taylor Trask. With me, as usual, the man, the myth, the minor legend of the greater San Diego Metroplex, Todd A. is with me. That's me. I like that right, you're, you prepped me for this by saying, like, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of uh, chit-chat. We'll just jump right in. And then uh, I have this series of uh, epithets before my name. That's cool. That's right. That's that's how we that's how we honor thee here on the panelism show. Well, and thank it's, you. And we're uh, you know, it's it's another it's another episode where we're going to talk about one thing and one thing alone, but it's going to be a lot of different sort of supporting things for that that one thing. And that one and thing. It, oh, go ahead. It's a one thing that honestly, if you had told me three months ago, if you said, "Hey, I want to do a whole episode on this," I would have been like, "Pass." <laughs> <laughs> and I got a lot to say. It turns out I had that's no idea. excellent. Well, and it's it's something we, we've touched on in previous episodes. I've reviewed uh, a book uh, in a previous episode just as a thing. Of course, if, if you don't know, if you if you didn't look at the title, we're going to talk Dune um, uh, in this particular episode. I think I'm gonna, I think we're going to name it "The Spice Must Flow." We'll see. We'll see if that comes up. Um, but we're going to talk about the movie and tangentially the David Lynch movie, which I I hope we don't end up saying more about that than the actual current movie that if, came out but if then we we'll do all... i'll try i'll try to stop us and we should just dedicate an episode to that because <laughs> this is incredible like the, and the way we got to today and recording an episode on this is it's pretty wild so. well and we're so we're gonna say that till the end just to make that so like if you really want to hear uh, us specifically me just bash the lynch movie like stay tuned that's coming we're also going to talk obviously the new movie we'll, we'll we'll touch on some of the the history of dune and uh, just get Todd's opinion on all this because he's still he's kind of a newbie to some degree on this. I mean, you, oh, you were, you were I, familiar. I'm in the deep end now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You are. You are. You are the Quidsack Hatterack. It's 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 make Uh-oh. no mistake. <laughs> make no um, mistake. I got a question for you to kick this off, which will lead into our. Oh, plus we like made notes and an outline. We're going to stay yes, on topic today. But yes, I have are. a question that does not appear in those notes, but it kicks off that first bullet, which is. What was the last movie you saw in the theater before lockdown started? See, this is a depressing question because it wasn't a good exactly. movie. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was tragically The Rise of Skywalker in December of 2019. And Jesus, what a what a disappointing just like you know, imagine if that last movie had been like Kingsman for me. Just like, ah, oh, that just it would have lingered in the mind in a wonderful way. This was just like a big <laughs> fart that just we, never then the room wasn't cleared after, and that just lingered for a year. We we've touched on this and pr- surely on the show we've also talked about it. Um because we both had we've talked about like that lat you know, we we love going to the theater and then that last movie, that last taste you got of freedom. Mine was <laughs> underwater. <laughs> Wait, what? What even is that? <laughs> With um, uh, Kristen Stewart, that's the the Twilight lady, right? Yeah. Um, it's a horror movie, uh, not horror. Oh. I mean, horrorish thriller where okay. it's basically um, the Abyss and whatever that other movie was with Sharon Stone uh, and Dustin Hoffman. Sphere. That's the like sphere, you know. It's yeah, like they're yeah. they're deep underwater. And some terrible thing happens to their station and they got to like run, you know, um, and Samuel uh, Jackson was also in sphere. He was the third. Oh yeah, that's right. And it's anyway, it was, I, I can't say it was like, I, it's, I, I, it's not a terrible movie. 
I have one big bone to pick with it, but I actually enjoyed everything else about the movie. It's just not like a remarkable movie where you think like, hey, I'm not going to go to the theater for a year and a half. Yeah. How, what's the send off I want? I wouldn't be like, yeah, put me in an underwater <laughs> movie with a bizarrely humanoid monster that lives in the deep. Um, that's my well, gripe say, with it. Anyway. Uh, well, I'll say this though. It's, it's made me really, really picky about the movies I see in theaters now because I don't want exactly. that to happen again. I'm like, I don't want another stinker to be like, you know, it's like all of a sudden we lock down again or something, you know, movie theaters just end for some reason. It's like, Oh God. I, and I felt this weird sense of like risk about it, like not knowing what I was getting into. I was like, man, do I really want it to it to be at fast nine where I catch COVID? Like, mm. you know what? I'll catch that on video. <laughs> like, I'll catch that on video. <laughs> yeah. Catch you later, COVID. Right. Exactly. Cut like, what, what is that story like? When I'm like, well, I, I was pretty safe for a year and a half. And then I went to see Fast Nine in the theater. <laughs> so, um, I, but what a return to form! Yeah. So we realized before we recorded this that this was we separately saw Dune, and it was separately our first movie back to the theater since lockdown in early 2020. Now, was that on purpose for you? Were you saving yourself for this, like I was? No, 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 no. It was actually just very much accidental. I had. I, um, well, I don't know that it was totally like a safety concern. I just know that like a lot of my sort of preferences have shifted a little bit. Like, I mean, I, I love the theater experience, but it was that feeling of like, okay, well, I, I don't really know how safe and enjoyable I'm going to feel. And I don't know if I prefer going to a nighttime movie or whatever, you know, I just didn't really know how to get back into it. And then this just sort of spontaneously came up where a friend wanted to, to see it in Dolby and several of us were t together at the time that was suggested. And it was like, hey, let's just all go see it in, in Dolby tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out that we booked the tickets wrong or read the um, website wrong or something. And we did not have tickets to a Dolby showing. So <laughs> the, the uh, original friends who put it together ended up bailing out. Um, and, uh, another, another friend and I saw it together. And uh, it was just the standard viewing um, but it was still like a great movie to see in theaters. And to ask you that question, we used to ask when we talked about movies, how did you see it? What was your format and experience? Oh, for this, I intentionally chose IMAX on a Saturday night. So it came out that Thursday, Friday, we saw it, my wife and I saw it that Saturday and it was in absolutely meant to be my first movie back in the theaters. Kingsman, uh, rather, sorry, the King's man was going to be, but they keep pushing that further and further. So now that that's like December or something, I think. Um, so this was, this was the first one. And I, you, I'm assuming you feel the same way. You know, IMAX is kind of, for me, the ultimate experience to see this in. Cause I knew the scope of it. I knew how big it was going to be. I knew certain things we wanted to see that are certain, you know, certain worm sized things that needed to be big, you know, and woe is the person who watched this for the first time, either on a like laptop or their TV or God forbid their phone because I, ugh. and it sounds like right. the cliche sort of hipster movie thing to say, but not it's true on this one. It's true. Like this, you are depriving yourself of a true experience by not seeing it in a theater of some size. Yeah. And I, that's good to hear. Cause I, um, at that same gathering where, where friends were talking about seeing it and making plans to see it, uh, two friends had seen it in IMAX. I believe this is the case and said if they were to 
you know do it again they would just go for the dolby experience versus imax but I, real I quick remind really exactly me know re- what that was Remind me, Dolby, because I think I saw, uh, coincidentally, Blade Runner 2049 in Dolby. That is the thing that's kind of IMAX-like, but like three times as loud. It's like really... Yeah, I think it's like just the... It's more of like that three... I think they call it the 4D sound or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trademark thing. It just sort of like rumbles the seats and stuff. Yeah. Imagine the... Okay, so we'll get to this too, uh, more in detail in just a moment. But like, imagine the voice... Um, which in a theater, yeah, the right. voice was badass. I can't even, I can't even dream of what it would be like in a Dolby theater. Like just, I mean, right. in IMAX, it was already creepy enough to just have that, that kind of go through you. Oof. Oof. Well, let's, uh, um, yeah. Before we get into too much about the movie, let's talk about our own personal history with the universe. Cause as you, uh, prefaced, we have talked about it a couple of times, uh, in past episodes, you've reviewed the graphic novel adaptation, um, but tell me what what was your intro into the the Dooniverse? Well, I'll just I'll give that answer alongside just sort of a, a mini history for for anybody out there who's still not familiar with where this all began. There was a novel published by Frank Herbert in the '60s called Dune. That was the very first book of what became a long running successful series. Later, uh, picked up by his son to lesser success, but still some interesting ideas, um, and that. That was kind of the that was the first big iteration of it. Um, there's the famous or now famous not made Jodorowsky movie that could have come out in the 70s that would have been the first adaptation. Instead, we got the David Lynch adaptation in the early 80s or mid, was it 84, 85, something like that. Um, yeah, that so which, that right. Let me stop you right there because that I the, I that feels like one of those facts that I should have known mm. but did not put together. I thought. Or if you had asked me 10 minutes ago, I would have told you that the Jodorowsky version was going to come out after the Lynch version. Like it was sort oh. of a, a correcting the path kind of thing. Like we didn't ah. like what Lynch did with it. So that right there just like informed me like, oh, that's what's so controversial and amazing about the Jodorowsky idea is that, the, I mean, we can get into the specifics of it, but that was planned originally. Like that was the first adaptation planned. And yeah. then we got the Lynch version, which we yeah, will and that was yeah. that was pre Star Wars. So Jodorowsky's had it happen right. pre Star okay. Wars, Amazing. and would have been like you know they didn't adapt a lot of of science fiction novels, if not anything, at that time. So just ad- adapting yeah. a book of that stature was kind of a big a big to do anyway. Let's make no mistake though, Jodorowsky's version would have been just as weird and and separate from the like I would almost imagine it, it you know this is probably a poor example, but. Um, Stanley Kubrick's Shining is not, you know, it, it honors the book to some degree, but it is not the book. Um, you know, that came later with Steven Weber's mini TV series with Rebecca DeMornay. But so like Jodorowsky's would have had like the spine of Dune, but it would have veered off in very weird and new directions, which could have been just as fun, but it wouldn't have been the story. So then we get to Lynch's film, which, you know, again, backbone was there, but he took some crazy liberties that I baffled okay. the mind. Um, I can't wait to then, hear about that. <laughs> oh yeah. And then came the thing that was my first intro into the into the universe and I neglected to mention this when we talked about the graphic novel part 1. I forgot completely Todd. The fact that I the first time I even learned about this thing doing as a thing was the 1992 CD-ROM based on the David Lynch movie. So by that I mean it had it was a it was a CD, it was a interactive C, like uh, point of view CD-ROM game that all the character designs were from the Lynch movie. 
Um, so like, you know, the Paul in the CD-ROM game oh, looks no. a little like, like Kyle McLaughlin, although with some minor differences. Um, right. And, you know, the costumes and set design were kind of more like that. So it, it was actually as a CD-ROM game and, and at that time, I think it was, maybe it was 93. I don't know if it was 92. 92. Really good. It was a great, you can go into YouTube right now, like look it up. There's, I mean, there's plenty of let's plays and kind of cut scenes and stuff. And remember the early nineties. So like graphics are going to be of a certain quality, but just as a moody experience, like you could just walk around the planet or fly a thopter around and run into a seat. And you know, it's, it was kind of interesting. Huh. And there was a bit of a story that accompanied it that, you know, you, you could die if you did the, made the wrong choices. Um, so that was my first intro into it. Then came in 2000 sci-fi at, you know, at, uh, at that time, you know, SCI FI sci-fi, you know, you know, science fiction sci-fi channel did a, mini three-part miniseries um on the first book which was then later followed up in 2003 by another three-part miniseries adapting both uh god emperor of dune and children of dune and which, so that, which were follow-up books yes yes so in the chronology god emperor of dune comes first i believe and then children of dune and they made they kind of blended them together into a, the second three-part uh miniseries which uh they got a lot more money for and just a much better cast. Like James it was one of the first things James McAvee was ever in. Um, and just it, they, I really like that children of Dune miniseries. You know, it's again, it ages, hmm. it doesn't age the best, but it does some interesting things and really captures, I think the feeling of just, you know, kind of heartbreak and, and sort of loneliness that some of those characters go through. So I was really into that. And then since then have come things like, um, you know, we talked about in another episode, a graphic novel adaptation. They've, they've done which, a, which is pre- recent, recent. Yeah. as in the last year and the part two should be coming out very soon. Interestingly, part one of the graphic novel adaptation lines up with, it, it cuts off almost exactly where the movie cuts off. Um, I think by pure coincidence. Yeah. So that was really? interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then they also have things like a prequel graphic, uh, sorry, a prequel comic series that's been ongoing by boom. They've been putting that. I think it's Dune House Atreides. Um, got a little tedious, so I kind of paused reading it just for an issue or two. But it's it's the covers are gorgeous, um, highly collectible. And then the movie, which we just you know, we're talking about now. So that's kind of the the and there's, I'm sure there's other like weirder sort of more obscure adaptations I'm just not aware of. But that's kind of the the main mainstream backbone of of where we started and where we are. So did you, after the CD-ROM, did you go back and watch the original Lynch film like prior to the sci-fi miniseries or? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No, I did not because A, at the time, it was very hard to get a hold of. You know, it wasn't very common in, in like, sure. rental stores and stuff where I lived. And two, it just didn't, I caught some trailers and stuff and I'm like, I don't, what is this? I don't want to watch this. Yeah, what's the appeal? Right. <laughs> and then the sci-fi miniseries came out. I'm like, oh, this actually you know, for all its faults does, you know, really honors the book and everything. So I didn't watch the Lynch movie until like, Jesus, 2010. It had been, it had been a while. Oh, okay. It's finally like, let me just give this a whirl and see. And Oh man. So Woo. yeah, it is always interesting when you come to it, you know, as an adult with like formed opinions and preferences, because, uh, so as, as you know, you know, and listeners who've heard our other episodes know, I, I have no, history with the Duneverse at all. And I don't exactly know why I avoided it because I actually did have access to the film a lot. Like I feel like I had friends who had it or liked it. Plus I worked at Blockbuster Video for several years. So well, what surprised <laughs> have been me difficult. Even, what surprised me even more is that you're a pretty voracious reader and like Dune seems to have like the target market of the book, at least at at, you know, in the sixties, seventies, eighties 
maybe into the night seem to be boys in like age 14, 15, right. 16, like boys, the age of Paul, you know, like in the story, right. Seem to really have gotten into the book. And maybe that was just a generational thing. I mean, and I would love to know clearly since then it's, it's much more diverse than that, but I, I would love to know when that shifted where like, you know, women saw themselves in it because there's some badass women characters in Dune, um, both in book one and then much, much beyond. Um, and just, it seems, I mean, it's the, it, there's, there's kind of a character for everybody in that story. So it's just, it's interesting that, you know, teenage boys were sort of the, the main, the mainstay for a while. I was surprised you weren't one of them. Yeah. And plus, and plus I was into comics and mm. I think there were comic adaptations or ongoing series, you know, like in the, in the universe when I got into comics. So I think I'd been around it. It just seemed to have this particular type of fan and you know, there was some like, uh, warning sense that went off mm-hmm. <laughs> like as a, as a younger reader or whatever. I was like, Ooh, I don't, I don't know that I want to be with those kinds of people, but I did think my a total impression until two weeks ago was that the original movie, even though you've probably corrected me on this, I thought the original movie was pretty well regarded by those crazy fanboys, <laughs> So, I mean, it definitely I, has its audience that they, that they're listening now are probably already upset, you know? So it's not like it, it has oh, its okay. detractors, but there's, there's a loyal kind of cult following around that Lynch movie. Lord knows why. Um, but you know, it's it, like yeah. all things, like all art, there are those who appreciate it. So you didn't, so you didn't what? know anything. So let me ask you this because, um, one of the biggest questions I had as a, as somebody who was very familiar with the source material, how would somebody who wasn't familiar with the source material, like how would this adaptation work? And I asked this specifically around the fact that they don't do a lot of exposition. I very little. Um, there's not like these big sweep. There's not like a big scroll at the beginning that explains why the, why the universe yeah. is the way it is. You know, they do very little to even talk about why the spacing guild is important. Why the spice is like, other than it's psychedelic properties, like what, what about the spice from an economic standpoint is really important. I mean, they talk about it a little bit, but they don't really hold your hand a lot. Did that, I guess, how did you find your way through this without that, that baseline? Great question. Um, so one huge help was that you and I had talked about it when you reviewed the graphic novel. Okay. So, um, if anyone's interested, that's episode number one sixty, and you had, at least set it up like um, discussing the problem of understanding Dune. You mm-hmm. you had said in this graphic novel, they do a great job of explaining like there are these houses. This is sort of the structure of the, you know, um, interplanetary government. And, the, you know, that everyone is um, reliant on spice for this interstellar travel. And, you know, so I sort of got the bullet points from you. Okay. But, was your you know, that notes. was nine months ago or something. And we, I mean, I I guess I can't like dance around this. So in the time that I've seen this in the theater, I have watched it again on HBO max and I've watched the original and I went and watched Blade Runner 2049 because that's a Denis Villeneuve movie that I hadn't seen. Um, So I've had a lot of like the director's work and Dune in my brain. So I can hope I'm being pretty objective in saying that the Villeneuve like movie does such a better job of explaining it in this like 
like it eases you into the story. Um, there is an opening voiceover from Zendaya. Oh my God. I can't believe I, I was like trying to make such a point to refer to people by their characters. Mm, Um, Chani. Chani. Yeah. Um, So that was very helpful. And it also anchors the movie in this way that, you know, you're going to meet her character, you know, Mm -hmm. and she explains like, you know, these people are only interested in the spice in my, on my world and suddenly one, you know, one day they were gone and we don't know what's coming next. You know, who, who's going to come here to mess with us again. So yeah. I felt like I get it right there. And then when I went and watched the David Lynch film, <laughs> I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, I don't, I don't understand anything and we'll get into that. But also there's just, you know, like a, a great, I know, I know, I know me too. There's I think that character of Chani is is representative of what's terrible about David Lynch's film because although like um Paul just talks about his dreams or something, but there's literally no visual or audible hint of who that is that he's talking about seeing yeah. Yeah. until Sean Young appears and there's like this <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel like there's like a close up of her or something and you're supposed to realize that's who it is. But by that point in the film, you're like, well, I only know that because I know how films are made. But this guy didn't like, you know, the director didn't plant the seed early on, whereas like Villeneuve put that like right up front. Like that's the first voice you hear. Yeah. So then you start seeing Paul's dreams and glimpses of her face. When she shows up, you're like, got it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I <laughs> we're we're already jumping in, but I did want to get like what were your what what was your takeaway like your first impression kind of thing like when you walked out of the theater? Oh, it was hard because I had to, it was kind of I do a couple things at the same time. One, I had to just sort of let myself fall into the fact that I was back in a theater. It's like, oh my yeah. god, I'm sitting here and this is happening, and no, oh, we're we're back, everybody. And it was a pretty crowded theater too. It was kind of nice just to sort of let that moment happen. I didn't want that. To, I didn't want to gloss over that. I kind of wanted that sort of you know, like almost communal, like, you know, reverence to establish itself. Then, um, I, you know, I was, I was, I had a couple things in my mind. I knew the cast was going to be killer just, you know, by who had been, you know, who had been cast, who pops up in the posters. Um, yeah. so that, that wasn't a concern to me. And if anything, as everybody sort of appeared on screen for the first time, all of my hopes and dreams were just va- you know, validated again and again and again. Oh, I was like, holy God. crap. Right. I would say at least half of that cast. Now, those are the, those are all I'll think of when I think of the story. Like a couple of those people are now like Rebecca uh, Ferguson is my lady Jessica from now on. Right. Um, it's there's a, there. And you know, uh, shoot, even Oscar Isaac is my Duke Leto from now on. Although, there's been some other really good Dick Glados too. It's a hard one. Anyway, um, so cast is good. So the, the the big things I was looking for out of the gate were like, what's the Hans Zimmer score going to be like? Because I I sort of had sampled it just a little bit ahead of time without getting too spoilery, and I was like, ooh, this is this is going to be different. I want to see how this happens in context. And then what's the scenic design like? What are the sets and the costumes like? How is that all going to like? What's did right. he even use sort of? How does he see this world? Because he's a we all know he's a huge fan of the book. He cares a damn lot about the source material. He's going to honor it like crazy while giving us what he sees and was, again, um, pleasantly surprised by that. Some of it is sort of how I interpreted it, but at the same time, it, a lot of it felt mm. very felt very new, especially when they get to Eric Keen 
which is the the kind of the capital city on Arrakis, very different from anything I've mm. ever imagined before. Um, so like that kind of stuff was just a delight. And then there's always that sort of for the first twenty minutes, there's always that thing in your mind like is this going to be good is this going to be good when can i stop worrying and like you know right, pretty right. pretty quick i was like okay regardless of what happens next they've passed they've they've met that you know we're we're good so now it's like how how good is it really going to be and then and I knew, by the way, too, coming into it very well that this is part one of, you know, maybe many parts and it will cut off at some point. I just did not know where. And so there's right. there's this wonderful feeling of, you know, after Paul and Jessica have fled uh, Eric Keen, that I'm like, shoot, how far into this are we going to go? And I just kind of right. got lost. And so when it did finally cut, I was like, oh, man, we're all, oh, there it is. You know, knowing it was coming. But when it happened, it was just like, oh, I'm so satisfied because <laughs> everything was everything just kind of came together beautifully in that moment. And then, you know, seeing where they're knowing where they're going from here and just being all the more excited now, having been like, okay, this is what he did with the budget he had. And, you know, sort of, you know, kind of everybody, Warner brothers kind of going, okay, now he's going to do it again with the, even with the more interesting part of the book, frankly, more money mm. and like the full confidence of the studio behind him. Like, what's this going to be like? Holy crap. Like it's, I couldn't have asked for a better sort of experience. Well, that, that's really, that's so cool to hear because, um, and it's a good place for me to insert that it's not that I, um, it, it's not that I didn't like any of these parts, but I definitely found myself like, um, wondering what the structure of the story was. Like, I wasn't thinking like this is going to cut off at some point from our discussion about the graphic novel and, you know, what I knew from like this film, this was going to be a part one, mm -hmm. you know, and it was like, I knew there was going to be more. Um, so there were definitely times where I felt like, where is this going? You know, like yeah. we're, we're hitting these moments of tension, but I'm not feeling like, like what's the big buildup to what's the climax of this where, you know, what's, what are we leading into? Um, but I was so immersed in the universe and the characters and especially like this word I wanted to say is that just the pacing of this story felt so even and not rushed. And like, I was like, Hey, I'm along for the ride. And I, I think part of that is coming into the theater after, you know, 18 months or whatever. And, and, and going like, I just want to enjoy however long this takes. Yeah. Um, but that was really interesting to me because then, you know, in retrospect, watching the Lynch movie, it hits a lot of the same beats. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it's like, it's not like there's a lot to admire in that first half of it, but the second half of the Lynch movie where it gets into, you know, what you call the more interesting part of the story is like, that's straight gobbledygook. Like that is just <laughs> nonsense for an hour. You know, the first part's not even good, but we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. But yeah, it just, I felt anchored in Villeneuve's like world. You yeah. Know? So yeah. It, I, you, there's, you know, there's like this meaningful scene of uh, Mr. Atreides. I can't remember his name. Um, you know, Paul's father <laughs> Mr. Atreides. And, and his advisor. My Duke friends Atreides. call me. It's okay. My friends call me Leto. That's his first name. And, Leto. Leto senior. 
And one of his advisors, like looking out over the city and explaining like, that's the, you know, that's the spice refinery and that's this. And this is why we have a shield wall. And, you know, the, the people coming by and saying, you're going to have to step back. We've got to draw the shades. You know, it's about to get too hot. All that was like, right. I'm here. I get it. Like this is, it was clever exposition because they disguised it as this dialogue. So it never felt like you're just being lectured to about, okay, now you have to understand this and then this and all of these things. I'm so happy that's the case. I had another friend who saw it, asked him the same question. He went in completely cold. And I was like, did you, he's like, I, he's like, I appreciate Cause I was explaining all the things I'm like, well, they didn't do this. And they're pushing this to the next movie. He's like, don't say any more because everything they showed me was exactly, if, if, if any of that stuff actually happened, what I would then have to do is have a, like a reminder before the second movie right. comes out and go, okay, where were we? So don't even give me like, cause there's some specific characters who should have been introduced in movie one that were not, they're going to come in movie two. But I think it's for that reason. It's like, look, if we introduce them now and they don't do anything, you're going to have to remember them in a visceral way before movie two. And a lot of people aren't going to rewatch this. They're just going to go into movie two. We, they have to sort of, we have to leave them in a place where everything feels familiar, where we pick it up again, where it feels like, okay, yeah, there's that guy. Okay. Got it. I know where we are. So I, I'm, I yeah. think there was a, well, I was kind of like, oh man, I wish they had, you know, I, I get that strategy. That makes, that makes sense. Cause now, if, especially well, if they do and- a third one, it's going to all flow nicely. So that's a great you you it's it said something earlier about not knowing how many movies they would do 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 we know like are are they setting it up like if they want to they can tell the children of dune and god emperor dune and like just keep going or the plan is the plan I have just heard, for two parts the plan i've heard that didn't even you has said or stated is that he goes look we're make they gave us the money to make the first one on the condition that if it does well we'll get to make the second one and finish book one and then if that does okay. well, I will get to do a third one that will be some combination of God Emperor and Children of Dune. If not, you know, maybe a third and fourth one oh, okay. if, if it gets really successful. So it's all kind of predicated on the success of each one and how, you know, whether people get burned out, you know, and kind of what his tolerance is to really keep to stay in this world. Because it's a lot, you know, it's it, this was this reminded me of kind of that old school, you know, like big, you know, 40s, 50s Hollywood where it's just like every you know, everything was. Yeah, and there was a lot of CGI, but there was a lot of scenic design, a lot of physical spaces that were either found or or built for these these casts to inhabit. And so, just there was a scope to it that um, it was refreshing to see again with some really well, really well done CGI. Um, but it didn't feel like it at no time did I feel like, oh god, this is just another just CG, you know, video game fest or something that felt yeah. like Star Wars, where just it all feels fake. Like they're really. There really was a consideration and, and the way they lit it and just, you know, a tactile, yeah. physical nature to it that I really, really appreciate. I don't think there was a single, maybe with the exception of some sort of like wide shots, I don't think there was a single exterior in the sand that wasn't real sand. I think that was all desert yeah. somewhere that they physically and, went to and shot. And lit- literally like watching these like in the same week, you know, with the original, like I'm, I, as I understand it, like from the stories of the Lynch film, I, I believe they were also like in the desert, you know, like that yeah. it wasn't that sort of like they did the same thing Star Wars did. They went out to Tunisia or something and filmed there, but you know, something about the <laughs> costumes and just how they shot it or whatever. It's it, it, I don't feel grounded in the Lynch movie that could have just been on a soundstage. I have no idea, yeah. but 
in uh, yeah the Villeneuve movie, it's like, oh, you know, we're here. And there were some cool things they did, like when they're exp- uh, when um, Chani is like explaining Spice just in that voiceover at the beginning. They show the sands, like you know, the kind of wind blowing the sand, and there's just these little. It's almost like a bokeh on the yeah, on the yeah. lens, you know. But you pick up like, oh, these little red like flashes are the spice. That's the know? first time and they've ever represented it, like ex- in, in, a, in a physical sense. And I was just like, oh, because you know, they. Sh- I, I take that back. So they show it. It's like a. It's like a weird pudding in Children of Dune that like Leto, mm. like Leto two drinks. So you kind of get a sense of like when it's ed- when it's eat- or edible, like what it is. But they never have shown it just sort of floating in the sand like that glistening in the sand I, I that was really cool like that gave it an extra dimension that i was like okay it's kind yeah. of ma- it's almost magical and there's um uh it's in a i guess it's in a later scene where they do a close-up of it on it's like in a dish yeah and they're yeah. explaining like this you know it has these health properties that the fremen uh value and you know and it's just like oh i get it like it's a it's a physical thing you know like it's not just a I honestly didn't understand if it was a metaphor or, I mean, or yes. not. Like, yes you know, or was like, yes is it an actual? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it could have been oil that they were extracting, you know. But and the meta- I mean, the metaphors, the, well, there's definitely a deep eco- uh, ecological, um, environmental rights sort of slant baked into this by Herbert. Mm, um, yeah. You know, any of the... Any of the things that feel eerily similar to something, you know, to a parallel in our world, that's intentional. You know, it's it's very intentional. This is a desert planet with sort of some, you know, Araby looking people running around and they've got just happened to be sitting on top of like the most valuable resource or commodity in the the world. And it's just like, okay, it all, it all fits. And we're taking their, you know, these white oppressors are taking their land and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's, it's all very intentionally set up that way. But the meta, back to your your point about the spice, like it is the metaphors run deep because it can be, yeah, it's a, it's it, in direct way a metaphor to oil or just energy consumption, yeah, and, yeah, you know, and in general. But it's also like think about in the '60s, just the the implications of of a substance that can open the mind of all 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 who right. ingest it, you know, and sort of put you in this communal state with you know the gods or like nature or you know shahalud is is could be basically like you know a metaphor for nature itself you know, manifested in this gigantic worm. And so like they, it's all right. When you start to get it, when you start to, when you're familiar enough with the story that you can really start to bake in those metaphors and that some, you know, that subtext that for me is where this really becomes a rewarding experience because yes, it's, it's fantastic. If you don't know the story, it's fantastic to kind of lean into the whole game of Thrones of it all. Cause it does have a lot, right, there's a lot right, of right. In, you know, palace intrigue and backstabbing and plots within plots and all of that. But then, Outside of that is this other sort of experience of just all those things I just mentioned, along with just, you know, how as as you see the the conclusion of Paul's story eventually, like, you know, how does that how can we find our own version of that in our world and just all the lessons you can take away? That's when that's what truly makes the the book and and, and by extension the rest of the all the adaptations, like the legacy of Dune, so long lasting is because it does it does transcend that story in all those deep ways eventually. Like once you kind of really, right. like I said, live in it for a while. Going back real quick, Jodorowsky's version would have gone way too far into that direction, I think. Mm. You know, he was he okay. was all about the metaphor. Like he didn't really care as much about the story so much as like what it meant. And so he was really willing to embrace that, you know, probably to a fault. Um, you know, Interesting. Have, a lot of book fans would not have been happy. You know, we, all, we all sort of marvel in the what, what could have been. And yeah, it would have been visually 
incredible. But like at the same time, if you're a book fan, you would have been like, this isn't, you know, as the first adaptation, I don't know, this isn't working for me. So anyway. remind, remind me and, and people who don't know, like, wh- like wh- what do we, how do we know what we know about Jodorowsky's Dune? Uh, strictly the documentary. I mean, for before the documentary came out in 2015, 2014, um, there was just a lot of like rumor and hearsay and, you know, random blog entries from people in Hollywood. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody who has a copy of that legendary Dune book that, that, you know, the production book would, you know, whip it out and talk about it. So, but you know, really small, small circles. Once that documentary came out, like it, it, and it continues to just sort of attract a new, you know, faithful, you know, faithful every year. Um, you know, more people know about it, more people pass it around. And then by extension, people just know about him as a creator. And, you know, you, you've heard me rant and rant and rant about him forever. So like, you know, I was, <laughs> I was clearly one of them, but you know, that, that documentary really illuminated, um, all the possibility. And then just, you know, the, what went, you know, what didn't happen. Um, so that's, that's, that's the basis of my knowledge of it. So you were, and you were telling myself and our friend drew that there is a, book of the Jodorowsky like like I don't even know what you would call it but it's it's uh, up for auction right now um at Christie's there no yeah at Christie's is there no like collection that a consumer can buy like can you not buy no. a book that's like Jodorowsky's notes no they made it so he made the and you see it featured heavily in the documentary they made this production book that was basically mm. a giant proof of concept it had all the storyboards had all the costume designs set designs concept images cast renderings basically it was like everything the movie could be in in a you know giant you know, hardbound book and they had i think they produced like 20 of them and when they were doing their studio road show trying to get a studio to you know either raise money for this or, or or pick it up they would give them a copy of this book like look all look here's all the work we put into this as almost you know and at that time that wasn't really done that much they mm. did it in this case as a as a proof of concept but almost as a as as a way to say hey look we know this guy's a little weird and like you know he he's put out these two movies prior to this that were very 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 avant-garde this is just showing you like we're serious about this like this is going to get made right. and here's the quality that we're like to just assure the studios and it wasn't sadly it wasn't enough but then as legend has it you know every studio who had a copy of that book went on to make other movies that borrowed heavily from things in those books so like the sort of the the dna of that movie ended up getting reflected in several several things that came after that and I mean, it, just because it's adjacent to all of this and relevant to our interests, we should also say one of the things you dug up this week is uh, a teaser, really, that they are going to make an, a movie based on Inkle, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It, long story short, the Inkle graphic novel was what Jodorowsky and Moebius uh, did when the Dune movie didn't happen. You know, they were like sitting around depressed and then they're like, well, let's take all let's we have some really good ideas here. Let's kind of recraft them into a, a, a new story that'll you know sort of be similar, but our own thing. And so there's a lot of their work ended up in Inkle. So if you're a Dune fan or if you're especially a Jodorowsky's Dune documentary fan, definitely pick up that Inkle book because it it does. It shares a lot of common themes with Dune, but is dis- still distinctly its own thing. Um, and yeah, they are making. Huh, they they announced that they're there's not a studio yet so this is all kind of from the ground up but they're making a movie at least that's the intention and they uh, have a director firmly attached in one Taika Waititi who was just revealed blowing my mind 
Like I thought yeah. it was going to be some kind of obscure, like, you know, French director or somebody like really underground, which would have been fine. So when they, when the camera pans up and, you know, there's this whole kind of little intro from, from Jodo himself talking about like, you know, if I was 40, I would be directing this myself and blah, blah, blah. And then the camera pans up. It's freaking Taika Waititi. You're like, holy yeah. crap. And so that I think <laughs> that was, was what a reveal. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd not be, not at all who I would have anticipated. And yet at the same time, I'm like, oh man, this, it was fun to see that he really liked this source material too. He really cared. So you know, yeah, it'll probably I, be a few years, but that sounds like it's coming down the pike. Yeah, I think it's worth digging up that that teaser if you're interested. Just it's like, I don't know, it's like three minutes, but it was it was like a little mini documentary. Yeah, um, which was just cool to hear Jodorowsky explaining like the origin of this book and how they got there. But OK, wanna, so can I yeah, say a few things ahead. that I did? You know, I, I, I we can keep talking about how awesome the movie was because it really, you know, really was. But a few things, I just, quick kind of rapid fire things I missed that you know they didn't need to be there, but they probably would have made it an even richer experience if they were. Things that were in the book or even in the sci-fi series or even in the Lynch movie that just didn't appear here. Strangely, um, there is top of my list. There's this dinner scene once the Atreides, you know, kind of. Uh, etc arrive in arrakis and they're there for a little while there's this dinner they have where i believe in the book princess irulan shows up if she doesn't it's like some you know like some highborn you know some you know, some representatives of, of the of the land strat or the other houses and just it's kind of like a political okay. meeting uh so that princess dinner. you mentioned is a person we have not seen so That's princess uh, irulan i'll talk about her more in just a minute too princess irulan is the daughter one of the daughters of the emperor got it and in the in Lynch movie, she's the one that narrates kind of the opening thing and you, they flash on her face, you know, silently, you know, like staring at you while you hear her voice over. Like, that's her. Um, in the sci-fi miniseries, they actually give her a bigger role. So she pops up a lot more early on. And I actually, I, I loved that because I think as a character, the book doesn't really do a lot with her early on, but there's this potential to really kind of tie her into the greater story in a more meaningful way. And the sci-fi did it. Um, so I was kind of missing her in general. Um, I was missing the fact, you know, the emperor uh, appears in book, you know, early on, uh, and but not in the movie. So they're obviously going to introduce him in the, the second movie, which is again fine. But it would have been kind of nice to see. We saw some of his representatives show up on on um, uh, Caladan to basically formally announce the Atreides as the stewards right. of, of Arrakis. So we get to see a little glimpse of kind of what his world is like, and then you get to see how his soldiers are are. Uh, you know, raised on on their their planet, which did not disappoint. You, they've always, I've always heard this. You know, the Sardaukar are like these viciously, just savagely like conditioned soldiers, and all these terrible things happen, and they hmm. really put that on Front Street for you. So, I, kudos to them for that. But I didn't see much of the Emperor. Would have loved to see more Eurolon. Um, that dinner scene I mentioned it revealed a lot of sort of motivations. I mean, in the book, there's a lot of speculation that Jessica is going to be a turncoat. And so there's kind of mm. at that dinner, there's a lot of this like, you know, sort of under the table, like, well, I know you are the, you know, you're the real Judas. Oh, you're the Judas. And like, everybody's kind of like mm. kind of playing these mind games. Um, on that note in the book, it's a lot more explicit. Dr. Yui, who, you know, the family doctor who ultimately betrays the Atreides, when you're conditioned as a doctor in the, you know, by the empire, you you pretty much cannot break your Hippocratic oath for anything. Like it, it would basically kill you to do it. 
And so the fact right. that doctor, so in the story, in the, the book, like Dr. Yui should by all accounts and logically be the last person who would ever betray these people. Like, well, of course he won't. Um, you know, him and the Mentats um, uh, are basically like the last. So the fact that he is the one that betrays them is is a lot bigger deal. You know, in the movie, it plays just like, oh, you know, it's one of our own. You know, and that's that works too. But it's like, it would have been interesting to see that deeper context of like, you know, and, and, and the dinner scene kind of reveals that more too. That dinner scene kind of has a lot of crucial mm. little uh, plot details that I can see now if they're going to cut some of these other things. Well, let's just cut the dinner scene too since it sets up stuff that we don't really have time for. And then... Um, and so... Oh, go ahead, Does that add this like additional weight to Dr. Yue giving uh, Leto the poison tooth? Yes. Like he, you yes. would never break your your oath that way? Yeah. I mean, it, it shows. So in the book, you, you realize, um, you know, his yes, his wife has been captured by the Baron. Why he thinks she's still, you know, he even says in the movies, like, you know, they're, they're taking her apart like a doll. It's like, oh my God, how would you, why would you even assume she's still alive at this point? Um, right. So kidnapped by the emperor and, uh, you know, they get, they basically get to him and they, they give him this devil's wager. And then, yeah, he's not, he's not happy about any of it. So he's going to try anything he can to exact a revenge um, and also try to give, you know, give House Atreides a, you know, a final, final glory or something. Um, you know, he's also the one that I think he packs the still suits for Paul and Jessica, maybe, or he does something to help them. I yeah, he exactly. did, he's yeah. And he takes the signet ring. From yes, Lido. that's like, right. He says, I'm going to do everything for Paul that I can. Yeah. Um, which Grant, I mean, that's like one sentence. It's like not even a second of dialogue. And it's basically not in the Lynch movie in Lynch. You're just like, I don't what's what's happening here. <laughs> just all that. All, all that. We'll, we'll get we're about there. Um uh, oh, I was man. just going to say well, something. Also, that's just such a great moment in the uh, in the Lynch movie. I do uh, just to call it out, like a great WTF moment for me was seeing the bad guys from Beverly Hills Cop Two, <laughs> both in House of Trades, <laughs> Dean Stockwell and Jurgen Prochnow, like Leto and Doctor Ua are the bad guys. Are they Beverly really? Hills. Yeah. I did not know that yeah. at all. I was just waiting for like a Brigitte Nielsen to like just show up. You know what? In that, movie, in that movie, Brigitte Nielsen would have been right at home. She could have been any number of things in that. She would have um, been a way better Harkonnen than any oh of Oh, God. You know, the do- the Dr. Yui thing is also interesting because it, it does sort of have a, a, sl- a, a slice of like, you know, what were regular Germans doing when the Nazis came a knocking? You know, like that has mm, that, right. that vibe where it's like you could see Dr. Yue, you know, the German soldiers show up at his house. He's harboring some people in his attic. They're like, look, we're going to kill your wife unless you tell us. And he's like, well, I guess they're up there. You know, it's like that. It has that sort of flavor to it. And the other thing that I missed a little bit, although probably the least consequential, is um, the housekeeper. Her name is Mapes. Um, and they introduce her. You know, like there's that scene where Jessica, you know, they line up some Fremen women for Jessica to sort of inspect. And she's like, you, you're the housekeeper. What's your name? She's like, Mapes. And there's, you know, that's. It can kind of start and end there, and you find her. Sadly, she was you know one of the first people that Leto finds dead um, when the 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 sabotage happens. But there's some yeah. other important things that she does in the story that mm. again aren't consequential, but it's you kind of you kind of miss getting to know her character a little bit more. You know, there's a whole thing. Mm. There's a whole thing in the book where the the palace at Arakeen, um, if I guess if you could call it the palace, has um, you know because this whole planet's just you know. A, 
bare, you know, horrible desert. You know, the heat gets oppressive. I love the fact that they stressed how hot it gets. Like, you know, you yeah. got to go inside. It's, you can't be out. You're going to die. They did a really good job of kind of setting that danger. But in the palace, in the book, in the palace, there is this like terrarium, like this um, indoor garden that's like the mm. only of its kind in the, on the entirety of Arrakis. Um, it's it's horribly expensive to maintain because it needs all this water. And Got Mapes, it. but Mapes is like the one she's like, that is like my, like, don't let them burn it down. They had a, they kind of had a version of that with the palm trees in the courtyard. Yeah, why, did, why didn't they just put Mapes? Why didn't Mapes just have that interaction with Paul? That would have kind of. At that would have made a lot more sense. Tied right? it together or something, yeah. I don't know. I have to wonder if even you just has like a whole, he's like, look, if I put Mapes in, I'm going to have to do like a whole 20 minutes because she's one of my favorite characters. Yeah, who knows why? Well, and again, it doesn't hurt the story to take her out, but at the same time, right, it, was just, right. it was a nice touch to have the, you know, you get to, it's just one more touch to really understand and kind of meet the Fremen and how they've sort yeah. of worked their way into society. You know, you've got mm. the sort of the, the you know, the, the urban it, Yeah, Fremen into the like, colonists society exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and just yeah. that that's an important little touch you know and then and the fact that leto goes out of his way to try to really you know you yeah they they kind of they there's another scene in the book i believe where he does talk to me you know he, he kind of treats mapes really well and she's like i've never seen this before and um they kind of shift that to the stillgar meeting when he shows up and leto's like look i really you know, i'm here for you guys i really want to make sure this is equitable and blah 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 and stillgar's like huh okay you know, just that—that that yeah. was kind of what Mapes would have been. So those are some things well, I miss, but not again. They don't fundamentally change. You know, they don't hurt the story. They don't take anything away. They just—they're nice extra little details that I think would have you know, sweetened it a bit more for me. Yeah, and I—I I, you know, um, coming into it as a noob and then going back and watching the original movie, I have to say I really appreciate that that stuff wasn't in it because to, I was able to connect with everyone and understand like. You know, the characters that I saw, I, I kind of understood. And yeah. then watching the Lynch film, he does exactly the opposite <laughs> and throws in every character. So you're like, I don't get it. Who are all these people? And they always at you. <laughs> to, to, yeah. To a point you made earlier about it, you know, being a not so veiled um, uh, like reference to you know, uh, colonizers going into like an African or Arabian country to take their oil, um, you know, where there's like a, a more dark skinned population. Uh, one of the huge things that like, I, I don't really know the, um, you know, what, what you should have done as a filmmaker, but in Lynch's movie, I can definitely say like, everyone looks the same. Like it's yeah, just yeah. a bunch of white dudes. So <laughs> with various sizes of beard. <laughs> right. And there's like a weird thing, like the Harkonnens, some of them have this spiky red hair, but then like not to spoil something, but when Paul's sister shows up later, she also has red hair and you're like, well, I don't know what's happening, you know, but it's, so it's like just when I think I get a bead on it, like it, it falls apart. But I definitely think Villeneuve's vision was so much better to have diverse populations within each population you know like um diverse backgrounds in each you know people like the you know the fremen were diverse and the harkonnens were diverse and the you know well maybe the harkonnens weren't that diverse but you know it was like you're seeing different faces and stuff so you're you're much more able to pay attention to like oh this is the uniform they're in oh lynch's was like I don't understand. They're all white guys. <laughs> all white guys in very, and the uniforms look, I mean, this, the, the Harkonnen suits and the Fremen suits in the Lynch movie look pretty goddamn similar. Like there's not a lot of difference. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. There's some part where, um, 
uh, Max von Sydow is like, t- t- like he's explaining the whatever it's called the skin suit the the scene where he does the skin suit thing with Kyle MacLachlan or whatever. Yeah, and I'm like, well, wait, are you wearing that same suit? I don't. They don't exactly look the same, but you, who are you? <laughs> Like you're a Fremen. I don't get it. Like there's no differentiation between anything in that movie. I just, anyway, well, I was going to, I just added another thought I was going to throw out there. I just, I just forgot. I, while I'm thinking about this though, shout out to freaking, um, Stellan Sarsgaard for bringing something new and wonderfully horrifying to the Baron. Um, they, uh, it's interesting. They pronounce it Harkonnen in this one. I've heard it both ways, so I'm I'm used to both pronunciations. Um, I, I am might, I saying it the Lynch way? Because I realize I'm saying Harkonnen. <laughs> you're saying it. You're saying it all the ways except for. I mean, though I've only ever heard Harkonnen one other time. And like I think Children of Dune, they say it that way like once or twice, but mainly they say Harkonnen. Um, but I've heard it. You know, it's popped up. I think maybe even in the CD-ROM game they say it too. anyway. Um, <laughs> but the way I like the way they did. The Harkonnens. Oh, this is what I was going to say. I love the way they did the Harkonnens in terms of just really making them feel like you know, there's almost like an insect quality. Like they're very just, just oh. these brittle, bitter people. And then you get Stellan Sarsgaard, and I knew he'd be in prosthetics, and you know they have to do all that. But man, the way he sort of, the way he kind of just gives that character just a, a sheer just sloth. You know, like like the the one oh. um, Ian McNeese played played the character in the sci-fi stuff. And he's much more of sort of a, um, like, like almost like a Caligula, like a aristocratic, like, Oh, you know, it's just very, it's, it's very much about power. He's more of a game of Thrones kind of villain. Right. Um, so this is like, this is just, just, and the, I don't know what's going on in the Lynch one, but like what Stellan Zarsgaard did really like it. I just, I, it really clicked for me. The one thing though, that I, I, I will say this going back to my list of things I wish they had added. Um, David Smallchin plays a character called Piter. Um, forget his last name. Um, and he's a Mentat. And you always know them in, in the Villeneuve movie, you know mm. the Mentats by the little sort of uh, digit on their lip. Like it's a little black yeah, digit. Yeah. And if you don't read, oh, by the way, did you catch our 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 guy from uh, um, the uh, freaking Hulu series? Oh, shoot. Devs. The guy from Devs was the Ment, uh, was uh, Tufir Halleck, the Mentat for the Atreides. Um, I don't. No, I did not catch this. Oh my god, it's the it's the de- it's the old developer from Devs in the that show that we love. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Anyway, but they have that little lip. I mentioned this in the other podcast we did, but like a mentat is basically you're a human condition to have the operating the, the brain operating capacity of a computer. So like mm. they can't have thinking machines. They they almost lost we almost lost humanity because AI almost killed us, so we said no more thinking machines. We're just gonna have to train humanity to do the stuff that AI and 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 you know high level computers used to do, and so mentats become sort of the class of like calculations and strat you know, strategicians and stuff. So Piter is the Harkonnen version of that or flavor of that, and the way David Desmolchin plays him, I heard this on another podcast, but he almost plays him just like as a glorified bagman or secretary, like he's just you know kind of an mm. administrator. Whereas in the book, he's that plus he's the most sadistic torturer. Like the most, uh, like you, you should have been, I was almost, I was, I was very nervous actually. Whenever they, he would pop up, I'm like, oh God, how, and they didn't, they ended up not playing it at all. But I was like, I was just dreading. I'm like, what are we going to see? Like, how awful is this going to be? Cause he's just, he's truly, he's truly dark, like a truly dark character. That's why he dies in the book. He dies when he dies in the movie, mm-hmm. which is when the, the poison is released. He's one of the victims. 
and you're thankful for it because you're like, Christ, if this guy gets any more power of any kind, this he is a dark dude. Um, mm. And so it's it's just interesting they didn't they kind of kept that really tame in the movie. I, I get that's the one Do I you, don't understand. I might, there was that could yeah. have been more interesting. Do you feel about these omissions? Um, it seems like you're pretty chill about most of it, but do you feel about it like when I would watch Game of Thrones? Um, <laughs> and just be I, yelling at the TV. No, I wasn't yelling. I wasn't like, I wasn't like, oh, come on. Because it didn't, again, it didn't take me out of the movie and it didn't remove a crucial piece of information or context. But it was like, I wonder if there's a, if there's a director's cut where those things are in, I'm totally going to make that right. my official version henceforth, right? So like, yeah. if, if they're going to be there at some point, I'll just watch it with them in. It's the opposite problem I have with the what seems to be the only version of the good, the bad, and the ugly that's still around, which is the version that's the original cut plus all these extra scenes they added back in, and some they even redubbed mm. with like eighty-year-old Eli Wallach, and it's it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, why is this? We don't need any of this. Like this movie was perfect. So anyway, um, well, I, I think that's that's so interesting to to think about because the. Um there's just, there's definitely a tendency nowadays when we can stream everything. It seems like what directors do is shoot everything yeah, and then pull things out for the theatrical cut, which is often then a mess. And then they go stuff it back into a director's cut. And you're like, well, I, you still could like, you didn't need all of this stuff. And I just, I think that what we got was so solid and whole, like to me at least, I didn't feel like I was missing parts of the story or questioning motives or anything like that. So it felt very complete to me. So I am curious what a reader of the novel or, you know, a past fan thinks going into it. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's about time. I think it, it must be done. <laughs> we must, we must now give our full fury and attention to the David Lynch 1984 Dune adaptation. We don't have to do this for long. You know, we maybe 10, five, yeah. 10 minutes. Um, but because that, like you said, that could be, we could just watch. You know what we should do? We should do like our own commentary track for it as a future I, podcast. I would love to. Then I would do, love to do that. Because it, it'll probably I, be as long as the movie anyway. We may as well just watch it in the background while we talk about it. Just have it. It's you know. literally every scene. I was <laughs> I was confused as to what the choices being made were. But you, what is I texted you during my watching of it and you said this, I was, I was like, you know what? I don't know that I'm really familiar with David Lynch's work. So is he just bad at movies? Like, I, you know, is he the twin peaks guy and, and he's, he's not good at movies. I, I don't know. And you yeah. responded, I, you know, this is not all Lynch's fault. So yeah, what is the it, story there? What well, happened? I, that is better. I'll leave that to be told by the many YouTube videos that you, if you just type in <laughs> David Lynch Dune into YouTube, and I just did it as you were talking to make sure it's still the case. Like one of the first things you'll see is David Lynch's Dune. WTF happened to this movie. And it's like a, how long is this? doesn't say the time, but um, oh, 15 minutes. So there's like a, there's little documentaries. There's plenty of interviews with David Lynch himself. The nuts hmm. and the bolts of it is, um, uh, what's her name? Rafaela De Laurentiis of the De La, of the yeah. Laurentiis clan. It was the producer on this thing. And she's the one who kind of stole the rights from the Jodorowsky group, tried to make mm. it this way. And then David Lynch has a version of Dune that's apparently like three times as long. And she took it and with some other people on the production side, just they chopped it up into what you saw. So on one hand, many of the choices that we find questionable 
are from David Lynch's mind. But a lot yeah. of the stuff that's just sloppy and the editing, like all that is the producer side. You know, there's there's some mm. fans who would say, well, if we just got to see his director's cut yeah, in full, then we'd have the movie. It's like, you know, it's like all those, God, who was that? It's like yeah, all those Tim Snyder cut. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say all those Tim Tebow fans who like kept saying, well, just just wait, just one more time and then we'll have what we want. It's like, he'll get his chance. It's like, no, dude, it's just, it's not good. Um, <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, but I, I would encourage you. It's it's kind of a fun, if you want to waste a little time on YouTube, just, you know, again, type in David Lynch. Dude, I do. And just kind of, you'll <laughs> see him talk about it and you'll see his thoughts on it evolve over the years. Like there's, he does like an interview like every five years and he ends up talking mm. about it. So um yeah that's interesting to consider i mean that it's it's, so maybe there's a cut so what he obviously tried to do was shoot the whole book right tell like is it okay start to finish yeah maybe there's a longer cut that has like connects a lot of this but as i hinted at earlier about an hour and 15 into it 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 takes into it, it, it about that time it catches up with what we get in the new movie yeah and that's when it just goes into the part two of this and it's just like a montage of scenes that are totally disconnected <laughs> and you have no emotional investment in anything. That was the producers. But, so that makes sense. But, but the things that I was going to like, one thing that occurred to me is like the, the thing that it's just, it's just, I mean, there's, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a movie director, et cetera, you know, big disclaimer, but it doesn't, there's nothing in the film making of this that feels like a science fiction adventure movie. Yeah. Like there's just like cameras just sitting still (laughs) when something really exciting happens or those like things where they do close up shots during a fight, specifically the uh, Paul sting fight. I don't know Sting's (laughs) character where you're like, yeah, it's like like just cut badly. And it's like, that's on the, that's on the director, man. That can't, That's not the producer. Like this is just badly done. And you know, my mind's going to like, okay, well what were other examples of sci-fi at this time? And I mean, it's just, to me, there was other examples are 2001, the space odyssey and star Wars. He had good things to draw from star Trek too. star Trek. Well, wrath of Khan specifically. So like, Oh my God, wrath of Khan is so good. Yeah. So he had, there were benchmarks. It's not like he was coming to this cold. I mean, just look for me, the choice that makes absolutely no sense is all the whispering. Is it everyone's well, journal monologue? Is, is spo- like I, if you don't know, if you've never seen it, every character there's there's uh, there's hours. Probably, let's say the thing's two hours. There's oh at least God. an hour of of just st- blank stares. Characters on screen, mouths closed, not saying anything, and you hear their internal monologues whispered. And, and it's, it's the most uh, ASMR. Like I, sh- I should have I should have given an AM- ASMR warning just then. The whole movie is like an ASMR delight. And if you, it drives me up the wall. I'm like, but we it, don't need to show me. Don't tell me. Don't, I don't need right. to hear this. Oh, and it's sorry. such a perfect illustration of like a directorial choice to improve something where, so um, Paul and his mother have a, I don't know how it's described in the book, but it is a silent language. And so in the Villeneuve movie, that is basically like a sign language done with their hands and certain they gestures. Did that, they did it sign language and sci- on the sci-fi stuff too. I appreciate and that. So in the Lynch film, it's just voiceover like, <laughs> like telepathy. But 
There's also voiceover internal monologue and there's voiceover storytelling. So you're like, you'll just hear a voice and you're like, where is this voice coming from? And are they directing it at someone? I don't like, I don't know what's going on, man. And in the Villeneuve movie, it's so clear. It's like, if you hear a voiceover, it's um, Shawnee and she's explaining the story. And when you see the silent language between Paul and his mom, it's uh, it's with their hands. And well, when I, characters realize something about say, Paul, quick, correct, quick correction: oh. it's not just Chani; it's Chani, and then occasionally that guy he kills. Um, he sees him talking to him too, kind of closer to the end. Remember, he pops up. He's like, "I'll show you the way." You know, he's just he's just kind of sitting. Oh, there, right, like, right, right, whittling or something. Anyway, sorry. I didn't, I to make well, sure. there's the third thing I was going to say was there's also points where a character will realize something about Paul. Like, is this the sort of mythical being who was promised to us or whatever? And they'll, they'll sort of like mutter it under their breath, you know? And, and occasionally as I recall, he's like, what's that? Why are they saying that? Why'd you say that? Yeah. So he's hearing it. So it's like, I can't remember that word for when it's like the sound is in the scene, but that's what it is. You know, it's like diegetic, like to the scene, but in the Lynch movie, it's all the whispers in the thoughts and you're like well i don't like what what's the point of that why do i care that max von Sydow like put it together that kyle mclaughlin is like you know the chosen well, one or whatever my favorite so. my favorite in the lynch movie is when linda hunt who, so linda hunt oh my God. plays Which is just amazing plays mapes. mapes in the movie yeah and it's like little linda hunt here she comes she's a fremen you're supposed to believe and like to just give you an idea of like how white this cast is and uh, you know, of course, like everybody, she's got her intern. She meets Paul, or she no, sorry, she meets Jessica, and she, she, of course, she has a voiceover too. She's like, "I am the shout out mapes," and then she goes, "Your housekeeper." Try to make housekeeper sound <laughs> like it's 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 scary. I'm like, why? Why is everybody so menacing in their whispers? Like, I much preferred in the Villeneuve movie, like you mentioned, when you know, you, either they they were silent and you just saw by their expressions what they were thinking, which is what good acting is supposed to do. Um, or they muttered under their breath, but it's in context and you know, people can hear it and just, yeah, it was, uh, just that, that drove me nuts. And then the other thing you really know, by the way, going back to your point about it, not being a sci-fi adventure, you really know someone's dropped the ball when the, the most fun thing in the entire, in the entire movie is a flashlight that you yell at. You know, like <laughs> every kid, I'm, I'm, I wonder if they were thinking, you know what, this year, not lightsabers, not, not you know, blasters. We're going to have flashlights yeah. that kids that you yell at, like somehow, you know, that's what, that's how he interpreted the Atreides weapons of choice. And I'm just like, okay, I, oh ugh. my God. And, and it's, there's a, there's a weird scene with the flashlights at the end where, and again, I don't know who's who because it's just there's like two quote armies, even though there's only about 10 people in each army, like running all over a sand dune. And I don't know who's, you know, which is what team is mine. But um, there's the flashlight people. And then it seems like in their same army are people carrying these like enormous Gatlin guns. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you're like, well, if you have that. Why are you using the flashlight? When they still and those fight those battle scenes, oh, the, you know, the epic the epic recapture of Era Keen, it's like the same twenty guys. They just kind of keep reshooting in different positions and make it look like there's a big army there. But it's just right. like it's it's very scant. You know, when they're all sort of at the palace at the end, you're like, there's not a lot of you, is there? It's just you know, it's just kind of it's, here we are. Yeah, we could we could only afford to take twenty people to the desert. 
Like we got, I mean, we got wrong. a football team worth of guys. <laughs> we took them out. I mean, then to your point, most of it was shot on a soundstage. I'm sure. Cause, uh, well, just, I, and I just, you know, I mean, I, like I said that I don't think there's any way around it. Like Lynch is to blame for a lot of how bad that is. Yeah. You know, exactly. Well, yeah. I'm not letting him off the hook you know, at all. Rushing the story, like choosing to emphasize certain things that the producer may have done, but these actors, they speak like there's a, there's a, a strange characteristic to the way they speak. And that had to be like a director's choice of like, here's how you're going to talk, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's just weirdly stilted. And I had written down a couple of those phrases and you had forgotten about one, but this Kyle McLaughlin pointing at this obelisk, this obelisk is of your hardest stone. Kick it. Um, and you're like, it's, am I supposed to feel That's something? Actual about line this? of dialogue folks. This obelisk is of your hardest stone. Kick it. It was that and the voiceovers and the um, just the general acting between them was was I just felt like that you can't get around that. And there were way better movies, especially sci-fi movies or even sci-fi movies made before and during this time. And I the other impression I had was there were two really bad what I used to think were badly made sci-fi movies that I saw as a child. One was called Ice Pirates, which I don't think anyone saw. And it was like a basically like a send up of Buck Rogers. And then the other one was Buck. Well, not Buck Rogers. Um, uh, Flash Gordon. There you go. The the one that Queen did the soundtrack for. Mm-hmm. And that's what Dune looked like more to <laughs> yeah, me yeah. than Star Wars or Star Trek. Yeah. It, you know. Or yeah, 2001, which it should have. It should have looked like yeah. 2001, honestly. That which was is, the. I, yeah. I think that's one of the great things about the new Dune is that you're not even really aware that it's a sci-fi movie. It just feels wholly like you're in a different culture and environment. Like, and this is just how the technology works here. Yeah. You you know, it's, it's not about spaceships and laser beams, you know, it's like everything's different. And that's, that's really cool. Real quick on that note. um, I have also been watching, we'll we'll talk about it separately. Apple's foundation series, which in some ways is analogous just because it's, you know, Isaac Asimov. This is kind of his seminal work, um, sprawling kind of space opera sort of thing. Very much tonally similar to Dune. Although, um, you know, even, even in the writing, like there's a lot of sort of whispers and rumors and intrigue in the book up to a certain extent. Um, foundation of the books are more about a series of conversations that sort of speculate about the future of humanity. It's, you know, the, the TV show itself is taking a lot of liberties. I bring it up though, just because whereas like you said, Dune really keeps it really restrains itself and keeps it very grounded feeling and much more a story and not about a technology or a space laser or something like that. Uh, foundation has added some elements that make it explicitly about that. Like in a mm. recent episode, they literally, out of whole cloth invent this like giant super ship, like a, almost like, like a abandoned death star that this renegade group of people find that it's like not at all in the books in any, in any way, shape or form. It's like, yeah, let's just put the, I'm like, okay, so now you're just star Wars now. Like you've just created this new situation. So anyway, I bring that. I just, I appreciate that venue Villeneuve, sorry. Um, uh, he just, he seems to have a, it, it, it really feels like every single person who did anything on this movie cared a lot. Like, I don't yeah. think there was a single oh, detail yeah. left unattended or un- unconsidered. Um, you, and which makes for repeat watching all the more rich. Um, 
you know, even those scenes where there's like, like when, like my, one of my favorite sequences was the taking of, was like the, the recapture of, of Eric Keen by the Harkonnens. Like when they bring the Sardaukar, like it's, it's just, it's <laughs> just... It, horrifying in all the right ways. But there's this, this wonderful scene as Leto's waking up and he's kind of looking around. You get to see how big and cavernous the cat, like the palace is. And there's these right. like very minimalist shots of like him, you know, in a black and white, you know, white shirt, black pants, kind of sneaking along these giant, very empty, very simple corridors, oh, but yeah, they're yeah. very like just beautiful shots like that. But you, even then, you see all this just detail, like even in a scene that's that oh, yeah. simple, like okay, the light's gonna hit it exactly this way, and there's gonna be this level of texture here, and you know, it was much more noticeable in the IMAX too. Like just the bigger the screen, mm. the, the more you can appreciate that stuff. Um, anyway, and back to the that, that's good. That's such a good point too, because like um, and I. Like so, I was not, you know, obviously not familiar with the the Dooniverse, but am pretty mostly familiar with the Blade Runner universe. So when I went after I watched this and I watched Blade Runner twenty forty nine to sort of just, you know, get all the Villeneuve in that I could, um, I didn't have the same affection for it, and it mm. felt a lot like he's still in that universe that Ridley Scott made. Uh, like it just uh-huh. it. You know, it, 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 like all these same things that we're saying about Dune, I think we could also say about Blade Runner, like it felt really solid and it, you know, it felt like, um, sci-fi without like having to point out that it was sci-fi or something. And, but there was just something about it where I was like, I don't know that we needed this story or something like I just didn't connect to it. Whereas Dune is interesting to me because granted, I'm not familiar with the source material, but it, it was almost a straight retelling of the book and previous, you know, source material. Like it's almost yeah. like beat for beat, like correcting the Lynch film <laughs> in some points. And like a teacher, it, like um, angrily red marking their students. Oh, exactly. Paper. Like, yeah, <laughs> show, like, nope. don't tell, don't have all these. Ones. <laughs> um, but, but I felt so much more connected to it. Like it felt so much more solid and like real. And, you know, I, I, you know, obviously he's like improved as a filmmaker over the last seven, eight years or whatever. And, you know, all this, this stuff, but it just felt really significant. Like, wow, he owns this. This is like, (laughs) I also kept thinking like, this is what we would have had if Guillermo del Toro had stayed on the Hobbit. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Interesting. Ooh, don't, don't give me that. I know. I knew. I knew that would take us down a rabbit hole. Which, for yeah. the record, that was no one was happy with that decision. That was all predicated on New Zealand's tomfoolery. Anyway, um, uh, what was I? Just, oh, you know, it's talking about Villeneuve. Um, it's really when you think about kind of where he. I know Sicario was not his first film. I don't. Think. Oh, that was, was him. I yeah. Forget. Oh yeah, it was among his first. But I bring that up because um, you get to if you think you know kind of start there and, and think about all the things between Dune and that. Um, you know, there's definitely some consistencies and to your point, there's a lot of evolution, but it really think back at Sicario. He, the thing that Villeneuve is really good at that. I'm now just realizing in hindsight, he's really good at strong female characters. Um, you look at Emily Blunt in that movie and what she goes through and her, her evolution and like how capable and how much agency she has. It makes perfect sense then that he's going to, you know, you have a, a central character slash component of the Dune story, which is the Bene Gesserit, this sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. secret sisterhood that controls so many things. Um, and so you have to represent them 
in a really serious way. And then by extension, Jessica herself has to be of that, but also of her own choosing and her own making. And you have to kind of display all these faceted things. And so you have this perfect union of like an actress and Jessica, or sorry, Rebecca Ferguson, you know, really bringing it. And then Villeneuve really kind of guiding her through like here, you need to be vulnerable here. You need to be scared here. You need to be in control. Like this moment is yours. Like, because what's, and I, I appreciate that. Because in movie two, she's going to go through a major evolution, like all at once. Yeah. And basically become, you know, like the Gandalf the White of this entire thing. And so you yeah. need, you know, there was a couple of people I talked to who were, you know, they thought, oh, she's, they didn't really represent her as badass as she could be. I'm like, they need to save that because it's if they, coming. Well, because they need to at least dial her down a little bit more now so that when she does hit that, it's, it's going to be so much more worth it, I think. Because I think when it comes out, and especially it comes out at the end in a, in a quick little um, fight with the Fremen, uh, you know, where this, where she t- takes the leader sort of like, you know, is, is holding him with a knife or something, you know, threatening him. And he says, he says something like, I didn't know you were a weirding woman and that you were a fighter. And yeah. she's like, well, we didn't have a lot of time to talk. And you're like, <laughs> Oh, there are like dimensions to this character. And when she yeah. and Paul are taken prisoner and, and, you know, Paul's goal is to use the voice to get her gag removed yeah. because she's the one that can really mess people up with that voice. Yeah. It, all those things are like just sort of hinted at. And again, not to kick a, you know, <laughs> a director when he's down, but like in the Lynch film, it's, it's just like a light switch gets turned on. Like her story just totally changes. And you're like, but there was nothing else to this woman. And now all of a sudden this transformation goes through. I don't, like, why do I care? I don't, yeah, there's no character yeah. development here. Oh, so God. we're getting that character development. In I would say film, the biggest awesome. sin, the biggest sin of the Lynch movie is the lack of character development is the lack of like, yeah. why do, who is this? And why do I care? Who's this? It's and just, why do I care? And they just keep gathering yeah. and talking. And it's like, I, who are any, why is sting in a metal bikini? I don't, why should I care about any of this? Like, it's just, you know, you maybe kind of sort of maybe get to know, Paul but then you're like but Kyle McLaughlin's like 35 in this he should be 14 like what am I watching I know there's, <laughs> he is why mo- is his father there's bossing a, there's him a, around like, <laughs> I can't remember if they're in the same shot or if it's just right after each other but there's a there's a shot of like of like Paul and Jessica and Shawnee and you're like wait which is his mom exactly <laughs> like they're, they're all in their mid 30s like what they're, on, they're all yeah they're all 30 it's just this one big and, oh no time moves different here in the future i guess and to so. your point about like female characters there's shawnee who granted we don't get to see do a lot but she's just anchored throughout this new movie and in in the lynch film she's she could be anyone she shows up and just makes out with Paul <laughs> you don't know who she is you don't know that this is who he's been seeing in his dreams actually he probably like in a loud voiceover is like it's the one from my dreams I don't yeah, remember yeah, I'm sure. but it's just like all of a sudden this you know this this woman walks down who looks like his mom and he starts making out with her and like oh, these weird like that like image within an image thing like where it just one image like sort of fades over the other and you're like oh my god this terrible montage uh, it's just anyway uh, let's uh, talk about like let's do a lightning round on like what we liked about this movie or you know other things that stood out <laughs> the, yeah. the new movie that is <laughs> I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll start with the, the most obvious Chalamet crushed it so like who is this kid was he in a boy band or something no I, <laughs> 
He could have been. I, like, literally, no. that's what I thought. I, his big, isn't he his in... big claim to fame was that Call Me By Your Name. No, not Call Me By Your Name. He was in that movie with the Winklevoss twin actor. Um, and they were like, he was, he played, they played like a gay couple. And, or, sorry, uh, there was some affair between the two of them. Oh, what was the, oh, shoot. Does Shall not sound familiar at all. I um, literally thought he was from One Direction or something. I mean, <sighs> I'm sure he plays into that a lot. No, he, uh, God, what was his first, hang on, hang on, hang on. It's called... He was in Interstellar, apparently. He was the young Tom Cooper. I never saw it. Uh, what? And then, Call Me By yeah, call me by Your Name. That was his big breakout. That was in 2017. Call Me By Your Name. Okay. Okay. And then he was in Lady Bird. He was in some other things. He was really? In, yeah, but yeah, he was in Little Women. Lady Bird. I love Lady Bird. I've watched that a bunch. He's Kyle in, in Lady Bird. Kyle Scheibel. Scheibel? Oh, okay. He's in Little Women. He plays Laurie. Um, I mean, he is... To echo the thoughts of many, many, many people, a beautiful man, like <laughs> thin and beautiful. He is, he is striking. <laughs> well, they, they make fun of his thinness a lot. They also make fun of his thinness he's in the Wes thin. Anderson movie he's in. That's the French Dispatch. I saw that too. He's, he's oh, a, I haven't seen that. Yeah, equally delightful in that. But he does this kind of like it, the way he plays Paul is not anything I was expecting. It's very, it's mm. it's definitely vulnerable, which is important at least early on. Um, but he does this kind of like Clint Eastwood thing, like. Where especially you notice it especially like when he when he and Jessica are having to fight for themselves, he's like, "There's a worm on the horizon. It's coming soon. We better go." And it's just like very, very, just you know, um, you know, maybe even Keanu Reevesian to a certain degree, just kind of yeah. very, you know, kind of well, rustic, kind of like, I don't know about that. You know, just kind of not, not in a bad way. I don't want to mock it, but like he just no, has this kind of very, I don't know how else to describe it. I didn't expect. Well, I kind of dig. I also think that's like just good direction and working with your actor, yeah. like, because he's so reserved and you could, I got a sense of like, okay, this is him being the, the noble son, like to the yeah. manor born kind of thing. And yep. then this is him just being a human kid, you know, like when he runs up to Aquaman and is like really happy to see him. And then when he runs up to <laughs> runs our, up to our dev friend, <laughs> I can't remember any of the characters names, you know, and, and the guy from devs, like when he sees him on, um, arachnoid or whatever like he runs up and is like oh and he like he hugs them and stuff and he like he's a friend you know and yeah, he's warm yeah. and then when he has to survive in the desert he's like the trained fighter that's like this is what we're gonna do you know? and you see and, and, and you see that they establish that nicely in that gurney halleck training scene where it's like oh this is how good gurney. he can be you know and gurney right, right, like right, himself right, yeah. is and they do you know it's important because it has to move quickly but they're like hey you know oh gurney's like the best he's like the man at arms of this thing he's like the best like, the best I can't believe we got through (laughs) the Lynch criticism without mentioning how that scene plays out when Captain Kirk fights uh, (laughs) Captain Picard. (laughs) And they basically, they activate their shields and then these two (laughs) Minecraft (laughs) creatures (laughs) fight each other. (laughs) And I mean, you know, they're doing the best they can in 1984, but it is hilarious. And then they yell at their flashlights and, and, you know, those just, yeah. Right. Um, let's talk about Jason. Let's talk about Aquaman real quick. You had mentioned in the notes. When do we talk about how <laughs> weird it is when Jason Momoa has no beard? Um, oh my God. Yeah, it is weird, I, isn't it? <laughs> I just had that moment of like, I didn't know what his face looked like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. They just somewhere in the middle of the movie, he is shaved it off and, uh, uh it's, it's odd. Like, and it's, it's, yeah. we're meant, we're meant to think that, okay, he's back. He's not out. Yeah. He's not sort of undercover anymore. So he can, now he has to be sort of, you know, military man again, shave all of that, all that good stuff. Cause he's yeah, kind of, yeah. we it's, see him. It's not it's, like he's a, 
I'm not criticizing his appearance. It's just strange no, no, no. that we've I've... we've known him for ten years or something and never seen him without a beard. Oh, I see. I was just like, saying from a character. And then you're like, oh wait. <laughs> I was saying as a character motivation, like it wasn't just random. Yeah. It wasn't just like he just right, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. No, no, he right. He had the beard when he was sort of like out in the field living with the Fremen. You know, I mean, he now literally he's back in the court and he's shaved. Yeah. The, the way he looked in this and most of the movie, like he literally could have either walked of equally the Game of Thrones set or the Aquaman set and just walked on to Dune and just like, here he is. It's like, you know, and Jason Momoa is a great, you know, every time he's on screen, he's a joy to watch, but he is, he does yeah. kind of do the same sort of thing in every movie, which is it, fine. I mean, it's what is asked of him and clearly delivered yeah. here, by the way, if they end up making, uh, a third movie and or beyond, he's going to keep reappearing a lot. Duncan Idaho oh. keeps getting reincarnated and regenerated and regrown. And like the poor guy, he's like, he's a thousand years from now, he's going to be resurrected again for some reason. And it's just like, that could be interesting. I'd, it could be <laughs> cool to see. I'd, you, you've said a thousand names tonight that I, one, do not remember from the movie and two, don't know who they are, whether they're places or people or things. Uh, but then it cracks me up that it's like, Paul, <laughs> Jessica, <laughs> and yeah. then Duncan Idaho, which is straight up a name I would use for a D&D &D character. <laughs> Indiana Jones yeah. and Duncan Idaho. Here they oh, Johnny um, Bravo's back from his <laughs> expedition. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, I also love, by the way, I should mention this earlier. They gender swapped Liette. Um, they called her Dr. Keynes. Uh, they call her that. They don't use really use her first name. It's... Um, it's the woman who's it, she's the uh, the the judge of the of judge of the chain. She's the one that's supposed to observe. Oh the yeah, transition. yeah, they did. Yeah, um, that's yeah. originally a dude. And by the way, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Probably for you too, but I don't care. She's the she's Chani's mom. And so um, you know, in, in oh, the book, okay. Liette is Chani's dad, and like there's a whole thing. In this, mm. it's a little different. Like it's I'm curious how much they're going to reveal of like Liette's true motivation in the next in the next movie because she's got another sort of thing going on that she. You know, in addition to wanting to, you know, see if Paul's the the savior, she has like another. She basically wants to terraform Dune. They kind of hint at yeah, it. Yeah, they sort bit. of like, hint at that. Yeah. Yeah, and they're and, like, she's and Chani says and, something like that in their in her opening narrative of like, yeah, yeah, you know, this could have been like a different planet, but once they found spice, nobody wanted the desert to go away. And that's important because later on, like you know, when when you know, it's, again, spoilers, 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 but kind of not. Paul ends up winning, um, but there's you know, it's not as good as you think it might be. And one of the effects is he he basically puts Liette's dream into place, and then they realize, oh shit, we shouldn't have done that because we're killing the worms now. And so that's a whole thing that that you know, again, it's more more environmental sort of theory mm. and ecology and all this stuff. Yeah. So I I just I love though. There's no reason it couldn't have been a woman. I thought it was perfect that it was. Yeah. It was, just, it was again, and Dini plays those characters really well. And I just, I like the symmetry of her being like a strong mom to Chani. I just, there's something about that. I, yeah. And then Jessica's well, a strong mom to Paul. Like, I like that, that mirror effect. And like, as a filmmaker, I, I know I took like one filmmaking class in college and it was from just a very classical, like old school dude who just had these rules. Like, look, if you're leading, you know, actress is a blonde then the the actress that plays opposite her is a brunette and i'm specifically using the actress word you know because that's what he would have said but it was like that's how he thought you know you don't put two you know blondes in a movie that are also <laughs> friends with the leading man yeah and uh, it's like lynch 
must have known that every filmmaker in the eighties knew that yet they're casting like entire, like just scores of white dudes that all look the same. <laughs> and it's like, I dude, I like literally there's a visual language here, which is, I can't tell them apart. Yeah. You know? At all. Yeah. Anyway, at all. Um, um real quick. I want to speaking of their... beautiful men. Yeah. Yeah. I think, oh. uh, Isaac Oscar's beard. I got to agree with you. Oscar you Isaac. Put I put, I'm sorry. Right, I put Oscar Isaac, Isaac Oscar. I read, Isaac. I just read your notes. Exactly. <laughs> Isaac Oscar. <laughs> it's That's We've been going a long time. Name. Oscar yeah, no. Isaac. Man. That, that yeah. man had a beautiful beard. Yes. Yes. I, I uh, man, I believe he's a, he is a, a, he is the definition of a word I learned this summer. I think he's a zaddy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I'm down with that. <laughs> uh, William Hurt, by the way, played uh, Duke. I was gonna mention this earlier too. William Hurt played Duke Leto in the uh, miniseries. Um, and he was beardless. So we have the Lynch movie. Ooh. Leto has a beard. TV series. Leto is without a beard. Now movie again. Leto with a beard. So it seems to, <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly, but it's, it's, you know, we're going to keep our eye on it. I think, um, yeah. uh, there's a line. I want to mention this to the real quick. There was a line in the trailer that did not occur in the movie. And I'm curious oh. why, and I hope it comes back in the director's cut or with the HBO cut or whatever. It's when Paul is talking to the Reverend Mother for the first time, and some t- somewhere mm. in that meeting, in the trailer, you hear her, go, you know, hear you hear the dialogue, and and she's like, he he says something like, "My father has a kingdom," and she's like, "He's losing it," and he's like, "Well, he's getting a new one," and she goes, "He'll lose that one too," and I thought that's a wonderful. I love it because it's wonderful foreshadowing for those who don't know the story, and it's just it was just yeah. a cool interaction. I'm guessing it happens after Paul passes the test because then she's all kind of cool with him mm. after that. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like that would be a perfect place for them to kind of have like a little. Okay, so let me tell you what's really up. Um, so that was really interesting. Uh, I just also want to say bagpipes um, in the soundtrack. What? Hans Zimmer <laughs> what, made the what a shock that was. Hans Hans Zimmer made the choice that the the Atreides like family sound is very Scottish and very bagpipe heavy, which I didn't know how I felt about until. They were they were being taken over by the Harkonnens and they ra- and Gurney Halleck's rallying and then you hear this like just army of bagpipes like na 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 and just it, it was so different and fresh that I was like oh yeah. I'm in I'm in with this um, and then finally like I guess if you could pick I know it's impossible but if you could pick one character who really did it for you or surprised you or delighted you in a certain way who would you pick? A uh, good question I think uh, you know me i always got to cheat but um uh i i mean it, it, it i think it, it's it's a tie between paul and jessica and i would mm. say that what surprised me about it was the relationship that that we see after their after they survive the mm-hmm. assault mm-hmm. and and so it was because i i think previous to that i I, both of them had sort of hints of things going on beneath the surface, but I just wasn't, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be. And then, it, yeah. then after they, you know, um, survive their, their, it's not a, you know, their imprisonment, their kidnapping, whatever. It was like, Oh wow, this is cool. I really like the way they're working together and the way both of their characters came out. So nice. My answer, you? my answer is basically the same. Um, I would say Jessica for reasons I expected. I expected Rebecca Ferguson to 
try her little heart out and she absolutely did and was directed expertly. But I would say shall I would say Paul was the real breakout for me. Um, because a Chalamet did something I did not expect, like I said. And then there's that scene mm. in the, um, they have just escaped Eric Keane. They're in their sort of tent, uh, hiding out from the storm. And, Paul's having this basically mental breakdown. Yeah, he's screaming yeah. at Jessica. He's like, you did this to me. You made me this. Um, command performance. Just, yeah. I mean, Chalamet crushed that to the point where now I'm like, oh, I want to hear him say the words, the sleeper has awoken. Because he'll do it convincingly. You know, he's not going to give us that Kyle McLaughlin like, Father, the sleeper has awoken. Like, it's like. Oh my God, I forgot about that terrible <laughs> Chalamet's going to make that make that mean something. Um, I saw, you know, some of this dialogue that's just been really corny. You know, the guy, the guy who played Paul in the miniseries, he did a, he did a fine job. He was also very old for the role. Um, (laughs) but he, you know, I think he was like in his mid to late twenties when they cast him probably because they're just too scared to put a kid in, you know, there wasn't. Yeah. And fair enough. I mean, we've kind of reached a point now where there's a lot of really good kid actors. Again, we're almost like back to the eighties where a lot of kid actors are really, you know, which makes me wonder why they couldn't have done it. They could have done it in the Lynch movie, but um, well, yeah, it's but, anyway, you know, but, but just, yeah. I just, I came away from that. I, yeah, again, I loved so much of what so many of those actors were doing, but <laughs> I just, I came out of the theater going, God damn it. Chalamet has just made me a fan. Like this might be, I don't know if it's my definitive Paul, but it is definitely mm. one of my favorite Pauls. Like it's, he's doing something so specific. And I, I, again, he's kind of setting the stage for something to come and I can't wait to see it. There. <laughs> You said that about the Lynch movie. I'm sorry to just keep extending this podcast until we reach the length of Dune. <laughs> the Lynch but, movie. Um, the, it's like he could have cast a kid and my brain went, yeah, he could have. And then you're like, wait, <laughs> in the reality of the Lynch movie, Paul is like 30 years old. And then he has a baby sister <laughs> that they get a literal baby to play. Like It's like this girl is so tiny yeah and in my head i was like well certainly more years have passed why did they send a four-year-old to argue with the emperor like it is it is well that's book that's kind of books that's accurate enough Um, okay you know she is like four or five years old because she's it's just that in the in the movie they give her that they somehow he like allowed her to make all these creepy faces and just be very off-putting and i'm like that's not what alia is supposed to oh it's weird she's much well, more like her mom like what is this this is not uh. yeah i'm i'm really curious about part two i uh hopefully i'm on the record on this podcast i do not like the trope of the chosen one yeah um and so i'm hoping that this goes somewhere that i have not predicted although i'm i'm prepared if it you know if if it's a chosen one story because it's a novel from the 60s and Trope was already pretty hackneyed, but you know, still, still fresher in sci-fi than, than it is. I'll now, say but. this. I'll, I'll say this. It, it is definitely a trope in this, but it is approached in a different way with the, with this is not a spoiler so much as just, you, you get a hint of it. What if the chosen one, uh, chooses poorly? <laughs> like, mm, okay. like, you know, what if, what if, yeah, maybe he's the chosen one, but like, shoot, is that a good thing? I don't, maybe it's not like that's, and then what's yeah. great about that is that all the subsequent books sort of wrestle with that. They go, well, mm. shoot, you know, this thing that we thought was like, you know, kind of the, the, you know, the, 
the, this wonderful thing that should have happened has basically screwed up the universe even more. So now what do we do? And it just becomes this whole, it's then it gets, you get really into the weeds on sort of the mythology and like, you know, how, how all these future generations are essentially paying for not Paul's sins, but like what Paul was un, incapable of doing, you know, yeah, he's able to okay. see. I don't so, know what that could be, but that's, yeah, yeah. that, that makes me anticipate it, you know, uh, more like to see how that goes. Cause that's definitely it. It just felt like, wow, one, you know, a couple of bad decisions here. And this turns into like a white savior movie. And <laughs> there's, I mean, know, I'll, I'll be interested to talk to you after the second one comes out. Cause I, I we have yeah. to see how they play that, um, in the movie. Cause there's, there's a different ways they could go with that idea. Um, and so we'll just have to, yeah, we'll have to definitely do a part two, uh, review and then look back and you know, we can, uh, yeah, we can definitely keep chatting about that. I, I definitely want to do. We have to find time. I want to do the the commentary track on the David. I just added it to our upcoming show topic list, so that's there. I I think it's amazing. It it just I, I'm I'm. It just means I got to watch that movie again. I just got to. I have to. I have to. I well, yes, but I have to. I have to convince myself I won't be whispering the entire time uh, in my commentary. So I just have to get get over that. Yeah. Um, I, but oh, okay, sorry. I did want to leave like with a with a final thought that I had and and then invite you to do the same, which was I definitely appreciate going to see this in the theater for a number of reasons. And I do think it's the kind of cinematic movie that you, you know, is great in, in a theater and in IMAX or Dolby or whatever. But I got to say it really held up for me on the small screen. Okay. Because I, I kind of assumed you and I might do a podcast on it. And I kind of thought I'll end up just watching it on HBO max. It's free, yada, yada, you know, whatever. But, um, doing it the way I did seeing it in the theater first and then being able to rewatch it on HBO. First of all, that's an amazing freaking distribution system. Isn't and I it? love that so much because I wouldn't have gone back to see it in the theater. It doesn't, I mean, it could have been five bucks and I don't think I would have been like, yeah, I'll go pay that. It would have just, just like, eh, you know, there's something about sitting in a theater again, but watching it at home, being able to pause it, you know, whatever. I loved that. And I, I just think like, however you're going to see it, I think it's worth it. There's certainly like optimal ways to see it, but, and I, and there's certainly stuff you're missing out by seeing it on a small screen, but I think it's just, it's still, it was still so like magnetic for me. You know? Let me just, let me, I appreciate that, but let me offer a small counterpoint. Okay. We will, we will have forever to watch it on our TVs. You only get True. a few, a few sh- tries and I'm sure they'll rerun it again before the second one comes out. So you'll probably have another chance, but that'll kind of be it other than the odd, yeah. you know, once in a while showing if you can catch it at an Alamo or something. So, exactly. that, you know, when there's movies like that, you know, like I don't, I just, again, I saw French dispatch too. I don't, that's one that I didn't, you know, I'm glad I saw it in a theater, but I didn't need to, you know, it's, it's yeah. not something where it's like the scope of it has to be appreciated. And like, all it's, it's like, yeah, it, I think I would have appreciated it just as much on TV and that's not yeah. minimizing it, but it's, it's whereas Dune, it's like, you kind of need to, you kind of need to see Shah Halud gobble you up from above. Like you kind of need that scale to really get the, <laughs> what they're going for. Yeah. Again, if you can't, to your point, well, if, they, if you can't, you're not, you still have a good experience watching it on TV. It's not like it's you're all is lost. So don't feel depressed. But if you can see it in a theater, I highly encourage it. Yeah. And I think if you watch it in that, if you watch it on HBO first and then went to the theater, like you're not going to feel like, well, I already know what's happening. You're no, just going to be I mean, I watched just it. as, obs- 
I agree about do it the other way, but you're going to be just as absorbed because to me it was like, Oh, the, this, this movie is so whole and like yeah. you're completely in this world and this culture that, you know, it, it, it definitely transferred both places, which is, I don't know, just, that was just great to see. I do love last thing. I do love um, seeing a movie in a theater and then coming home and then being able to like pick out scenes literally that same night exactly. on TV and go, Ooh, let me rewatch oh. this. Let me rewatch this. Um, and they're basically getting me twice, right? They're getting, and then I've since watched it all the way through on HBO just to kind of relive yeah. it, you know, as best I can. Um, I should see it in the theaters again before it goes, but like I just, I do, and I can't wait to do that with the matrix. I can't wait to do that with, you know, whatever else is coming up. I don't know how, if HBO is going to do this into next year, I, I doubt it. Sadly. Uh, um, I know. I, I would really love it to be ongoing. I mean, so many so. movies, I, uh, so many movies, like I saw at midnight and I came home. I'm like, fuck, I wish I could rewatch it like right now, like yeah. in bed, you know, not like have well, to go back. And so many times you and I have talked about a movie and I'm like, unclear on exactly what went down and i just yeah. want to refresh myself before we talk about it and yeah, like, yeah, nope. yeah 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 honestly the only pure experience like we ever had before this this system <laughs> of the dual releases was when we saw arrival and then immediately did a podcast that's right on it. <laughs> like saw it together and then went to your studio to record <laughs> That's right. Well, that's a great transition yeah. point. So like, if you want to go back to those old episodes, we do talk about arrival, um, which d- we it's did like see episode together. 30 or something. Yeah, yeah. As early on, we talked about Dune, the graphic novel in previous episodes. We got a pretty deep catalog. So if you're listening now, go back, relive some of those old episodes. A lot of them are evergreen. So, you know, they're not so topical that you can't go back four years and feel like we're talking to you now. If that makes any sense. I've, I am very punchy right now. So I've run out of things to say. <laughs> Um, we're doing a tight 45 minutes, man. We're not going over. (laughs) Yeah. And you can find all those old episodes at panelism.inc. I N K. And that's just an easy way to sort through them. But you can also subscribe to us on every podcast platform. And I think that's it. So I'm going to say until next time, until next time, sir. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to do your thing. Nope. That's it. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where we'll cut it. Right there.